while. This could be morning, evening, or afternoon. So uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the ICHA uh, weekly webinar. I greet you in the wonderful name of Jesus. This week, we have a very special subject. Um, we are talking about the festival of uh, Shavuot, uh, Shavuot, of course, is the Hebrew name for what we know in the Christian circles as Pentecost, the Feast of the Fifty. And uh, we have a very special, uh, it's not a guest lecturer, it's an in-house home lecturer at the ICJ, uh, Mr. David Parsons. He's uh, living in and out Israel. I think he visited the, the land since more than 30 years, but lives in Israel since more than 25 years with his family. He not only experienced the Jewish festival himself, but has become a, a very active Bible student on Jewish traditions and the connection of Jewish holidays and uh, the church and Christian belief. And I look very much forward. The subject of today is uh, uh, the church and the kingdom of God, and as these are related to the festival of Shavuot. David, it's so good to have you with us. And so thank you so much for uh, giving us this amazing teaching today. So the floor is yours. David, please, what is the story of Shavuot? Yes. <clears throat> thank you, Jürgen. It's great to be with everyone. And uh, you and I, Jürgen, we're switching the, the, the uh, timing, the slots for a, our two-part messages on uh, Shavuot or Pentecost, and uh, you're going to be back next week to talk about uh, the birth of the church. But uh, mine is a similar message uh, that is dealing with the uh, church and the kingdom of God. And uh, if you have your Bibles, we want to turn uh, first to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, this is when Israel arrives at Sinai. And uh, we are um, uh, at verse 3, it says in verse 1, that in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so they left on the 14th of uh, Nisan, the 15th of, of Nisan uh, at Passover, and this is uh, in the third month, there you have uh, Nisan, then the month of Iyar, and this is uh, the month of Sivan, the Hebrew month. And after they had come out of Egypt, on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, camped in the wilderness, so Israel camped there before the mountain. Verse 3 of Exodus 19, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me, like a jewel, your most prized possession, a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And we also want to go over to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, the second verse or second passage that we want to read. And uh, here in Matthew 21, Jesus is talking to some of the uh, um, Pharisees and Sadducees uh, up uh, um, about the temple, and he's just given them the parable, the wicked vine dressers. They respond, you know, the, the, these, guy, these guys who took the, the owners, the master's vineyard and didn't give the fruit and killed his messengers, killed his son. Uh, what shall be done to them? Well, they said he will destroy. This is Matthew 21, 41. He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render him, to him the fruits of their seasons. Uh, Shavuot is, is uh, actually one of the harvest seasons. 
and it's the wheat and barley harvest and you have to they understood something about the message and connection you have to bring a first fruit of all the harvest of the land even the other species at this holiday but jesus said to them verse 42 have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone this was the lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes i believe that's psalm 118 that he's quoting from then verse uh, 43 very important here therefore i say to you the kingdom of god will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it the kingdom of god will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it we have in exodus 19 the first time that god calls israel a kingdom and here a passage in matthew 21 very important very critical very misused and misapplied down through church history and we want to deal with this because i believe there's a special connection between these uh, two passages and shavuot now shavuot of course is one of the three uh, pilgrimage feasts when all jewish males had to appear in jerusalem before the lord at the temple and to bring a first fruits offering uh, each of the feasts are tied to some of the different harvests in Israel and the Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks. Uh, it falls on uh, after seven Shabbats. You, you start counting forward from Passover and then the Feast of First Fruits. When you start the counting of the Omer, you have a counting of seven Shabbats, 49 days. And then on the 50th day, on the 6th of Sivan, you celebrate or you mark the Feast of Shavuot, which really uh, commemorates it. It's twofold. It um, uh, is remembering or honoring uh, when and celebrating when God gave Israel the Torah through Moses on Sinai and specifically the Ten Commandments. And it's also a grain harvest feast uh, to supply grain for the summer months. And uh, the um, verses where you can find about this in the Law of Moses, Exodus chapter 34, Leviticus chapter 23, Numbers chapter 28, and Deuteronomy 16. Uh, in most of those passages, you'll, you'll find it referred to as the Feast of Weeks and Shabuot. A Shavua is a week and Shavuot is the plural. So it's the Feast of Weeks, the seven weeks between Passover and this holiday when Israel received the law. And as with uh, each of the major Jewish festivals or holidays, it includes uh, Shabbat. Uh, they each have a, um, it's three faceted. You're remembering, you're celebrating something and observing it, keeping it in the present because of some past uh, act of God, something he did that you're remembering. Uh, there's a present uh, aspect in usually in, in harvest time and also a future prophetic purpose threefold with each of these feasts. And of course, uh, you're remembering uh, now when you celebrate it, you're remembering the giving of the law on Sinai. This is in Exodus 20 and Exodus 32 the through exodus 32 talking about moses going up for 40 days to receive the law you have that present purpose you're celebrating a harvest feast in israel you actually have a winter wheat that grows and uh, and a barley they grow in the winter and in the rainy season and you harvest them between passover and shavuot and you also have that future purpose that that uh, israel was keeping the uh the festival of shavuot um and the followers of jesus were keeping it here in jerusalem in the first century on that day when the god poured out his holy spirit uh on the followers of jesus in the upper room on the day of pentecost recorded in acts chapter 2 it says when the day of pentecost had fully come or the day of shavuot they were probably over in the temple area getting ready for morning prayers 
when this happened to them and they were in one accord and praying and worshiping and the Holy Ghost manifested with them many of the signs similar to what happened on Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. Imagine Jürgen might mention some of that next week when he talks about Shavuot, the tongues of fire on the mountain, the tongues of fire on the heads of the disciples. So that future prophetic purpose that was hidden in Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, was fulfilled in the birth of the church in fire on the day of Pentecost. And uh, we want to celebrate that. And even as the church, most uh, churches know about uh, Pentecost in Europe, there's still a bank holiday for Pentecost in, in America and many other countries. It's, not, it's sort of uh, a secondary holiday, not quite like uh, um, Easter or Christmas or whatever, when everything's closed down, but maybe that's a failure on our part. It's an important holiday, but I want to talk on our, our theme, the church and the kingdom of God, and focus in on the words of Jesus when he said that the kingdom of God would be taken from you and given to a nation, the, most Bible translations uh, translated as nation, given it to a nation that will bear the fruits of it. And this particular passage <clears throat> in Matthew 21 has been uh, really a, a foundational uh, scripture for uh, the development of replacement theology. This notion <clears throat> that God had uh, either finished with Israel, accomplished, fulfilled everything he had promised to them, uh, <clears throat> or because of the rejection of Jesus, they, that he uh, punished them and took the kingdom from them and gave it to another nation or people, meaning the Gentile church, to be, uh, bear the fruits of it. And often, the, because the word uh, uh, nation is used in the Greek, it says ethnos. It can mean people, a, a, a racial people, a tribal people, or a nation uh, is how it would be translated. Often replacement theology down through the centuries has had a very nationalistic aspect. Uh, we know of British Israelism, where many taught for centuries within the church in Great Britain that Britain had replaced Israel and had now had a worldwide kingdom, uh, both in the natural and in the spiritual. Of course, England was so critical to the spread of the gospel to so many nations. It's it, The reach of its empire really enabled the gospel to go forth, and we have to give thanks for that. And England was so involved in the translation of the Bible uh, into English and then getting it into so many other languages. But this British uh, Israelism also was a real... Um, uh, um, it was a, a, a misuse of, of the Word of God and a misapplication of it. And I think uh, one of the uh, manifestations of it uh, in recent, more recent times, we're seeing it right now with Russia. Uh, I spoke in uh, Moscow uh, around five years ago, about four years ago, there were around 600 evangelical pastors from all across Russia. It's a huge country, and they had all come to Moscow for a conference on Israel, and it was a very wonderful gathering, but as I talked to some of these pastors and really got a sense of, of Russia, uh, you could sense, I, I don't know, I just really picked up on it, the, the sense that the Russian Empire itself had a big dose of this replacement theology and Matthew 21. And it turns out indeed that for centuries, the Russian Orthodox Church has taught that they are that nation. When Jesus says God's going to take the kingdom of God and give it to a nation that will bear its fruit, they identified themselves as that nation. And of course, Russia was very important in uh, that whole region and its whole region, including its spiritual development. But we're seeing that it's gotten deeply embedded in Russian culture, uh, deeply entrenched 
all the Eastern Orthodox churches have some element of, of nationalism to it. You have the Romanian Orthodox Church, the Armenian Orthodox Churches, which really has good claims to being one of the oldest churches in the world, uh, predating uh, you know, so many other churches. But uh, each of these countries have their own sort of national expression of the Orthodox faith. Russia has theirs. Uh, they're all seen on one level as equals with the patriarch, the, the patriarch of uh, Constantinople or the Greek patriarch. He's considered first among equals, but Russia has sort of broken away from that in uh, over the last 400 years. And because of its empire, it developed this notion that they were the nation, that God had taken the kingdom uh, from Israel and given it to the Russian people to bear its fruit. And the way that is uh, uh, sort of playing out today, that deeply entrenched uh, belief is that the war in Ukraine, uh, whether it's Putin or the Russian Orthodox patriarch Kirill, they've turned it into a sort of holy war. And they, uh, the, because they believe Russia, what they call the Russian world, uh, it's the only country left, according to them, that's fighting the global moral slide against abortion uh, and especially against uh, what they're calling gender freedom. Uh, Kirill had a message on the Orthodox Easter Sunday recently um, where he suggested that the West was engaging in the suppression and extermination of the people in the Donbass. This is the eastern part of Ukraine where all the fighting is going on right now. And uh, because in the Donbass, uh, there was, is a rejection, a fundamental rejection of the so-called values that are offered today by those who claim world power. This is the patriarch, the Russian patriarch, Kirill, saying the people in the Donbass have been fighting, they're being suppressed. And he said the, the key um, uh, sign of this spiritual battle of trying to fight off uh, uh, Western decadence, really, if you want to really identify what he's talking about, that it was that in the Donbass, in other parts of Ukraine, they agreed to hold gay pride parades but the Donbass had rejected it, and the West was now trying to destroy this area. This is how they are trying to justify this invasion. And it's quite interesting today, as we are coming to you from Jerusalem, from our headquarters in Jerusalem, just two, two miles away or so, not far away, uh, is, uh, Jerusalem is hosting its gay parade, gay pride parade today, and the big one will be in Tel Aviv next week. Uh, there's always trouble and controversy about it. And of course, as Christians, we want to uphold a biblical standard, but uh, we don't think you should go, uh, you know, destroying cities and leveling them and firing multi-launch rockets and cluster munitions and killing people over those sort of issues. It's a spiritual battle. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty to the tearing down of strongholds. But really, the, um, uh, this war, Russian war against Ukraine, even Vladimir Putin has, has talked in these terms when he held a rally in Moscow in March, just a few days after the war started, even quoted from Jesus, saying there is no greater, lo no greater love has a man than to lay down his life for a friend. So they're trying to give it a spiritual dimension and, and turn it into a holy war because they identify themselves as the nation. And then we saw British Israelism, other countries have nationalized that sort of scripture, uh, you know, uh, appropriating it to themselves and winding up in, in, in error. We couldn't, can't agree. We've got to stand against uh, what they've identified as Western decadence. We got a whole old godly standards, but we don't do it through war, through uh, uh, the means of warfare of tanks and, and rockets and such. We got to defend ourselves, but this is a different issue. So exactly what did Jesus mean when he said, I'll take the kingdom of God and give it to a nation or a people that will bear its fruit? Well, um, I think 
uh, our brother Peter Sukahira. He's been such a blessing to us in teaching and joining our global prayer, our feast and all in recent years. And he has a good book uh, about uh, um, the, the kingdom of God and, and where, how it was birthed through Israel. Uh, and you find it, we read uh, in Exodus uh, chapter 19, verse 6, verse 5, God says, you'll be a special treasure. If you walk with me, you're going to be a special treasure to me, verse 6, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, um, uh, Kodesh Goy, a holy nation to me. And uh, these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Numbers uh, chapter 24, Balaam, when he's prophesying over Israel and talking about Jacob's tents are lovely and I can't touch it. And it says his king shall be higher than Agog, which was his king, and his kingdom shall be exalted. So even the prophet Baal, who did have a prophetic flow, was talking about Israel in terms of being a, a, an exalted and a special kingdom that was chosen by God and protected by him. And when we talk about, you know, uh, Israel be, be birthing the kingdom of God, it's not that they were just a certain people living in a certain land uh, with a king and with rules and whatever. It's that God placed his name upon them and he, he uh, revealed himself to them and even came down in his holy presence with them. And then they then carried that glory and that presence before all the other nations. They were chosen uh, for this purpose. The, the glory of God, he dwelt between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant as they carried it around in the wilderness and brought it in. And when they set it in the temple, you had that holiest of holies. Uh, and, and it was this, this Shekinah presence of God. This is what sets being a holy nation means you're set apart for some purpose. Even Paul talks about it in Romans 9, that to Israel belonged uh, the worship of God, the service of God, the law of God, he says, to them belong the glory, the light of God, and the presence of God, that Shekinah presence that went with them in the pillar of uh, fire by night, the uh, pillar of cloud by day, in the, his presence in the tent of meeting, in his presence in the Ark of the Covenant, in his presence at the temple. It was that unmistakable divine presence at the temple when the Queen of Sheba came. Uh, there were other things that really impressed her, but what drove her to her knees was that you felt the presence of God there in an unmistakable way. And that, uh, you know, when all the pilgrims of Israel, all the uh, Jewish people coming up each year to worship at the temple, you had to cleanse yourself, take a ritual bath. You were going up into the presence of the Lord to offer your sacrifices. And there was this abiding presence there that they, they uh, some of the sources talk about how the fire of the altar in the court of the altar in the temple that even if the wind was blowing 50 mile an hour, the smoke of from the fire on the altar went straight up. Even if it was raining, cats and dogs, that fire never went out because it was holy fire from heaven that had fallen from heaven that they had carried uh, all the way from the wilderness. And there were other uh, signs of God's unmistakable presence, such as things that happened on Yom Kippur. And, you know, so Israel had this special blessing and this special responsibility of carrying the glory of God. And that made them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation unto God and all the other nations around the world whether they just looked at Israel or if they really came and encountered it, came with an objective mind, you know, this was the kingdom of God. It was a, a, a spiritual divine presence within the midst of this one people that God had set aside as his special treasure. But we know that uh, Jesus himself, he had some troubles with what was going on at the temple. He went and uh, chased out the money changers. 
of course. And other sources tell us that there, were, there was corruption by those who controlled temple worship at the time of Jesus. And uh, um, some of the sources say that, that the Romans had allowed the Jewish people to continue their temple worship there into Jeru in Jerusalem, to continue with it as sort of an exception. All the other peoples they were conquering, uh, you know, they had to give up their religions, their idols, their whatever, and, and uh, adopt the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. Uh, but the Jews, because they had, uh, you know, they, they did not have a God that had images. He forbid it that you couldn't see. He wasn't considered some rival to, to the emperor, to the Caesar who was holy. So they had an exception. They were grandfathered in and allowed to continue with temple worship. But over uh, time, uh, the Romans slowly crept. It was a creeping annexation of Jewish freedom and all. They felt it in the time of Jesus. There were always little rebellions breaking out. And the, um, the, the Romans actually, the Sanhedrin, uh, the, the, the Romans allowed the Jews to continue with temple worship, and the Sanhedrin was in control of it. But the Romans knew it was a lucrative business. This has to do something with the money changers up there that Jesus chased out. And the Romans put the, the chief priesthood and the control of temple worship up for bids between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law and carried on not only the written law, but taught of the oral law. There's a new book out that says the Sadducees, there's some mystery about exactly who they were. They were Hellenizing, they were merchants, they had more money, they outbid the Pharisees. But there's a new book out that says they were actually like the Karaites who rejected the oral law and only stuck with the written law of, of Moses. Very interesting, we'll see how well that uh, new theory sticks. But the, the Sadducees had outbid the Pharisees for control of temple worship. It meant a lot of, of money. And there were certain, there was corruption there that the place where God had placed his name and his Shekinah presence still rested even in the second temple, in the second temple era. Uh, Ezekiel 5 says God was going to exile Israel and destroy uh, the temple because you've defiled my sanctuary. And Jesus read this and he, told, he warned his followers and warned the people of Jerusalem, this beautiful temple here, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. And it's not only the temple would be destroyed, but the kingdom of God, what he told those who controlled temple worship, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to a people who will bear its fruits, who will appreciate that Shekinah presence of law, uh, uh, and his glory on your lives, and you'll walk with it, and you'll carry it, and you'll be a wholly separate, set-apart people. And, uh, and so Jesus, from Scripture, from Ezekiel 5, other passages, he knew it was going to be destroyed, and he warned about it. But when we get into this one verse, uh, Matthew 21, verse 43, about the kingdom of God being taken and given to another nation or people, uh, which has been so abused throughout church history in, uh, in uh, fueling and defending replacement theology, the, the error of replacement theology, we have uh, the Newer Testament. This is a translation of the New Testament by Dr. Brad Young at uh, Oral Roberts University. We just had him uh, at uh, our Envision Pastors and Leaders Conference in January. He was excellent. It was great to have him. And uh, we talked to him about this new translation, which really tries to capture the Hebraic culture, the Jewishness of Jesus and the apostles and the Hebraic culture they were in. And, and give you a real sense of how of what was being said, how the followers of Jesus would have understood it in that day to help us really understand what the scriptures say. And he has an interesting footnote to Matthew 21, verse 43. He says, the reference to a nation that will take the kingdom of God 
and give it to a nation. He says it, it was clearly understood by the hearers of it to refer to Israel. In, in other words, an, in, an internal transfer of the kingdom to another people within the nation of Israel. Because the Gentiles are never viewed as a separate nation. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, they're called goy, or plural is goyim, the nations, or the goy from uh, the nations. The Gentiles is another way it's, it's translated. But uh, the, there was no way that those who, who heard what Jesus was saying would understand that God's going to take the kingdom from Israel as a nation and give it to some Gentile nation. And it's a singular. It's, you know, there's a hundred and almost 200 nations in the world. Which nation is it? You know, this is, are we going to argue and fight over which nation gets the kingdom of God over the centuries? But the corrupt temple leadership, this is a footnote we highly recommend. We have it in our bookstore, the Newer Testament by Dr. Brad Young. Footnote to Matthew 21, verse 43, he says, The corrupt temple leadership was despised by the common people. They are not producing fruit. These leaders had missed their opportunity. And you could compare it to King Saul, who lost his kingdom to King David. He lost the kingdom the kingdom of God. He lost it to King David and his family. So, and it's quite clear in 1 Samuel 15 that Saul, you've, you've lost the kingdom and God is giving it to the kingship. He's giving it to, taken from the house of Saul and given it to the house of David. It was an internal transference within the nation, the people of Israel from one household or clan or tribe to another. And in Acts 1.6, the disciples demonstrate an awareness that the kingdom of God will be restored to the nation of Israel when they, uh, and uh, we have to say that Israel is promised that it will be restored to them as a whole nation. So it's very interesting, and, and Jesus answers that the times uh, and seasons are in the Father's authority alone, exactly when this happens for Israel, but my, 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 we're getting close to that day. But very interesting footnote to this, that when Jesus talks about taking the kingdom and giving it to another people, that's probably a more accurate, he meant within Israel, there would be someone else who would take the kingdom and bear its fruits. And this is what we see on the, um, the day of Pentecost. It is exactly what we see. Some of the sources, the Jewish sources uh, in the Talmud and others, they talk about how those, those unmistakable signs of the presence of God, the, the the smoke from the altar going straight up, the things that happened on Yom Kippur that showed God's presence was there, that somehow it, def it, uh, it, uh, it left the Temple Mount and the Temple area and the courts of, of the Temple uh, sometime early in the first century. It, by the time Jesus says it, it's already happening, and the veil of the Temple rent in, inside the Holy of Holies when he died. And just uh, 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit fell, and the kingdom of God, that unmistakable presence of God to carry his glory, it fell upon 120 Jewish followers of Jesus gathered in one accord in the upper room. These were Jews. It was not some other nation. It wasn't Brits. It wasn't Russians. Thank God we've got Jewish believers. We've got Russian believers. We've got English believers. We've got American and African and Indian and Brazilian and Chinese and believers from all over the world. But the birth of the church was a moment where the kingdom of God that had been resting on the Temple Mount was deposited now among a people who would bear its fruit. And those people happened to be the followers of Jesus who were empowered by the Holy Ghost 
and the manifestation of this moment and the kingdom of God came upon them was so great that tongues of fire danced on their head and everyone could see it and 3000 people got saved the whole speaking in tongues and we hear them we hear them speaking in our tongues so they whatever they were speaking the people the manifestation was that the Jews from all these other nations they also had other languages they spoke and they could hear them in their languages so it was an unmistakable presence of God being poured out on the day of Pentecost which is the birthing of the church and uh, the church was not um, meant to replace the nation of Israel it was meant to enlarge that spiritual kingdom of God of spiritual Israel all the believers who take on that responsibility to carry his presence in their lives and and they really did carry that presence you have to uh, hand it to those early apostles uh, that within their lifetimes that fire that fell upon them uh, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost they carried it their whole lives it burned within them to where they were willing to be martyrs for the gospel and they carried the gospel of the kingdom remember Jesus said go and preach the gospel of the kingdom from India all the way to Britain at that time it spread uh, the Ethiopian uh, Enoch he took it down to Ethiopia and Africa it went uh, the from Turkey all the way to India along the old trade route the Silk Road and the trade routes at that time and down into the region of Israel the common language the language Franco was um, was Aramaic Jesus spoke it the disciples spoke it and there was actually a network of churches from Turkey all the way into through Iraq Iran all the way to Pakistan and into India where they all spoke Aramaic they would get the the scriptures in Aramaic and take it with them and so the the gospel was able to spread to the east down those trade routes and the silk roads all the way uh, you know the the known world at that time even uh, evidence that it's in China so you know they were so effective even in their lifetimes already Colossians says this gospel which has already been preached in all the world and the fact that within a, a generation or so of those early believers within uh, five or six decades of the day of Pentecost the birth of the church the fact that it had become predominantly Gentile it is not evidence that God wanted to strip Israel of all its uh, spiritual credentials and all of, a, of his presence and replace it with with a Gentile church no it is testimony to the effectiveness of those Jewish followers of Jesus who got empowered on the date of Pentecost how effective they were in mess and ministering the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God in all the earth and even becoming martyrs for it the fact that the church was majority Gentile within 50 or 100 years it is testimony to their zeal their fervency their commitment to preaching the gospel and we have to honor them for that and and i just think it's it's not evidence that god uh, to to prove replacement theology sorry it is evidence of how effective and zealous those apostles were now as we start to wind up this message on uh the um, church and the kingdom of god going out among the nations at Shavuot the Jewish people have this tradition where they read the book of Ruth it's a little book uh, in uh, in the Old Testament uh, and uh, the reason that it's usually read at Shavuot in the synagogues is because uh, Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi have been in exile in a foreign land in Moab across the Jordan Valley from Israel and but they come back to Bethlehem 
in uh, har at harvest time. And Shavuot is a time for the wheat and the barley harvest. And Boaz is out in his fields uh, collecting his harvest with his workers. And Ruth is out there in the fields and meets Boaz. And we have this incredible uh, story uh, about them. And uh, I think it really should be encouraging for us uh, especially as we sort of explore the Jewishness of Jesus, Heart of Break Roots, that this is an incredible story. It's very prophetic. It's a picture of Israel coming back. Uh, uh, Naomi, her name was Comfort, but she said, call me bitter, call me Mara, bitter, because I've lost everything while I was in exile. And she's coming back from exile. It's a picture of uh, Israel coming back from exile in a time of harvest, but she has nothing left. The only thing she has is a Gentile daughter-in-law because her husband died, her two sons died, their wives, one turned back to her people and her gods, but uh, Ruth refused to go back. She says, I've seen something in your God. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Uh, where you live, I'm going to live. And where you die, I'm going to die. And there shall I be buried. Where she made this commitment to come back with her. And Naomi has lost her land. She has no heir now. And all she has is this daughter-in-law who's clinging to her and, and standing with her. And it really is a picture of the prophetic of an Israel today coming back from exile with very little, but God plans to restore, not only restore, but really to exalt uh, Naomi even into the messianic lineage through this Ruth. And Ruth was a rejected Moabite. The Moabites had did certain things to Israel, had not let them pass when they came out on the Exodus and other things, that they were banned from the, uh, um, the assembly of Israel and from worshiping in the temple area for 10 generations. They were not supposed to be there. And this uh, ban of 10 generations on the Moabites, even if they married an Israelite and had children, even the children were not allowed to come into the temple courts, weren't allowed to be part of the assembly of Israel, couldn't count towards a minyan or whatever. Um, so they were a rejected Gentile. She was a rejected Gentile woman, and yet she saw something in, in Naomi, and especially in the God of Naomi, the God of Israel, and, and uh, clung to her and attached herself to her and made a commitment to her to help her, that uh, this Gentile woman was even exalted to a place where in marrying Boaz, she became uh, not only part of this kingdom of God, here's a Gentile, Ruth that becomes part of the kingdom of God, the believing part of the nation of Israel, who carries presence, who are humble before God, righteous before him, upright, but even exalted her into the lineage of King David, and in turn, the Messiah. And that should be very encouraging, this prophetic picture for us. I believe it is a picture that when even when God birthed uh, the kingdom of God through Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, uh, just in the days before delivering the law on Mount Sinai to Moses. He already knew this kingdom would not just be limited to Israel, but when one day go out like a net and capture Gentiles from all the nations, from all people, ethnos, different tribes, tongues, nations. This is even what the book of Revelation says. From every tongue, nation, and tribe, God has gathered a people, the family redeemed from all the earth. And Ruth is a picture of not only um, us Gentiles being allowed into this kingdom of God, which uh, began, you know, in earnest with at the day of Pentecost, but even having a special role in it where Ruth became part of the lineage of King David and through him, the Messiah. And over the centuries, it, I think it's helpful to really understand the role of the church. When we talk about the church and the kingdom of God, our role and purpose has been to spread the kingdom of God, 
through the presence and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. If we don't have the presence of the Holy Ghost operating in our lives and manifesting in delivering and healing and saving and forgiving, then, then you know, we're not so effective. But it's that the kingdom of God, the church spreads the kingdom of God among all the Gentile nations throughout the world. Uh, and but it it's the church is supposed to be a movement. As soon as you start moving, you start fossilizing, you turn into an institution. We need governance in the church. God has set up a governing structure through the uh, apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers. But uh, we still were a movement that has to keep moving and keep spreading that net and uh, and have life and divine presence, but so much of uh, out in the world today that calls itself church, the church of God or, or the church of Jesus, they do not have the divine presence. They do not have the life. They fossilize. They become institutions, people who like to play church because it makes them feel morally superior to others. And it's a real shame where the, the people of the kingdom of God need to be humble, say, I was a sinner too, and this is my testimony. I was forgiven, and the Holy Spirit came upon me, convicted me and of my sins, and I was birthed into the kingdom by the Holy Spirit through the water and the Spirit. And the church, you know, over the centuries, um, out among the nations. It's not only slowed down, turned into institution, fossilized, no power, no life. It's taken on much of the world. Uh, in some places you'll find, you know, uh, crosses of Jesus and all mixed in with other little idols and trinkets and everyone's praying to all of them at once. There's a lot of cultural baggage in so many churches today. And the Lord is coming back for a church that's been purified. It was born in fire, and through the fires of the Holy Ghost, God is going to refine us here in the end days because he's coming back for a bride that was, is without spot or blemish. And in order to attain unto that sort of uh, status, that state before the Lord, the church really needs to recapture the fires of the Holy Ghost that fell on the day of Pentecost. And I believe we also, as part of this purification to become pure and spotless without blemish, Gentile Christians need to get their hearts right towards the Jewish people. And th this is happening in our day. They, you know, over the last hundred years, the fires of Pentecost, the fires of the Holy Ghost have brought in uh, as many as 700 million born-again, spirit-filled believers in the world today. This is amazing that it's happening. And even in the midst of it, there's this hunger and this thirst and this desire, spiritual desire, pure, born of the Holy Spirit, to, to know more about Israel, to know more about the Jewishness of Jesus, our roots, to get closer to Israel, and to have the right heart attitude toward the Jews. Not that they're, you know, still so special, we put them on the pedestal as if they're already in the millennium, but understanding that God still has a purpose in them, the kingdom of God, they have a promise that it will be restored to them one day, and we need to have a heart of expectancy and hope for them and praying. We already see it manifesting in so many uh, uh, believers in Yeshua here in the land around the world, but we need to develop that heart of Ruth, amen, uh, which is read in the synagogues uh, um, on Shavuot. It'll be this Sunday when the Jews gather in their synagogues. They will be reading from the uh, book of Ruth and uh, they'll hear a Gentile woman, a Moabite, who was once rejected from the assembly of Israel and from the temple courts, should have still been, but she was so um, touched and so drawn to, the, to not only Naomi, but it was the God of Naomi and his faithfulness to her that she clung to her and came back to the land with her. And through 
this Gentile woman, Ruth, uh, the thing that Naomi wanted most was to get her land back, her inheritance here in the land. The thing that Ruth wanted most was a husband back. Her husband, uh, Naomi's son, had died, and Ruth wanted a husband. And both women, both Naomi and Ruth, got exactly what they wanted all through the same person, Boaz, a type, uh, he's a kinsman redeemer, a type of the Messiah. They each achieved what they wanted, and we as the bride of Christ have that desire to, to be ready and prepared for our bridegroom, but it's going to require that we have that right heart attitude towards Israel and the Jewish people. Praise the Lord. So that's the message that I have today on the church and the kingdom of God in relation to Shavuot. And Jurgen, as we conclude, I just want to read uh, something I just read today about the Ethiopian Aliyah. Of course, yesterday there was a flight of 180 Ethiopian Jews that are part of this next wave of 3,000 coming over uh, the next coming weeks. The Christian embassy has already helped thousands of Ethiopian Jews to come back to the land in recent years, and we're going to be helping sponsor some of these flights over the coming weeks, and another um, 100 and some land, 130 or 60 or so, I think 160, just landed within the last hour, a second flight at Ben Gurion Airport, and uh, one of them that landed yesterday, he was talking to uh, uh, a reporter. He's a good guy, Kanan Lipschitz with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. This was published today. And he had waited 23 years in Ethiopia to rejoin the Jewish people. And his mother had already moved here, but for some reason he couldn't come yet. One of these Falash Mora people were converted to Christianity and but still want to practice their Judaism. But here um, he he says, you know, I'm so glad I get to come. I'm not going to tell my mother I'm coming until right before we get on the plane. I don't want to disappoint her if there's another delay. I've been waiting 23 years. But he tells this reporter. I have been waiting to leave Ethiopia because this is not my home. These are not my people. I am Jewish and Zion is my country. I think he's speaking from the book of Ruth there himself, that even here the Ethiopians represent uh, really a Gentile people who join themselves to Israel, to the kingdom of God. And here he's uh, going to spend his first Shavuot in Israel on Sunday. And we bless him. We bless his family. We bless all these Ethiopians coming back. And that's very exciting uh, to read that. I thought it was very touching uh, in preparation for this message today. Well, David, thank you so much for the very powerful message and uh, illustration what Shavuot Pentecost means. It's a very powerful uh, symbolism or analogy that the coming of the Holy Spirit is actually, in a way, you know, brings this full shadow of the kingdom of God already now into our hearts and into our lives and how much that is needed. What you said about Ruth um, was exactly when you, when you shared that what Prime Minister Netanyahu said, we had a gathering in the Knesset, and uh, in a way, when you mentioned that, I had to think about that um, when he spoke about uh, to a group of around three, four hundred Christians in the Knesset that came for the Jerusalem prayer breakfast. And uh, he was sitting there in the standing there in the Knesset and he says, it's important for all of us to understand that you Christians, you developed Zionism, you predate Jewish Zionism, you, were, you have been first Zionists before we Jews were. They actually wanted to stay in the diaspora, mm -hmm. and uh, you taught us to be Zionists. And it's exactly like you said, you know, they gave us their Messiah. And at the same time, it was the Gentile church which put this vision, uh, you could say, in Naomi, said, well, you need to go back to your homeland and help them to, to mm -hmm. bring the... Uh, Jürgen, you, you've muted. And uh, who do have a question? The first one that was 
from Margot Gabriel. Is it recorded? Of course. Uh, very shortly, this uh, lesson will be uh, on YouTube available, and you can watch it again or read again through the scriptures. But uh, um, you know, one before questions are coming in, uh, David, one comment or question to you. It's quite interesting. You know, you can say that the uh, grandmother of King David was a Moabite, was not Jewish. So yeah. in regard to some of the rabbis today, he probably wouldn't even be able to make Aliyah to the to the yeah. land of Israel. And then it's also interesting, I, I read this the other day, when he was persecuted by Saul, he said it's, he sent his family over to the king of Moab. And probably uh, David, for quite some time, he kept family relationship and kept those relationships with the Moabite side of the family alive. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think it's quite uh, interesting. You know, we um, we belong to the kingdom, but we're still uh, we have these these nation. You know, these our background and. And God wants different nations and peoples, and, and he doesn't want to strip us of our own identities. We do have to get uh, rid of some of our cultural baggage that isn't pleasing to him and, and you know, take on the, the, the characteristics and the morals and values of the kingdom of God. But uh, he wants uh, people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And when Paul says, I'm... Uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female. When I got saved, uh, the next morning I woke up still a male, and I woke up still a, a Greek or more a barbarian. I still am, and that's that's part of the miracle that I am from some barbarian tribe way up northern Europe or whatever, and yet I'm a part of the commonwealth, been brought close to the commonwealth of Israel and made part of the kingdom of God. That's the miracle of the gospel and what Jesus did on the cross in drawing all men unto him. But uh, look, David made many strategic decisions. He, he married the right women sometimes and, and, you know, made strategic decisions, but he had some purpose in that. And, um, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's true. And you know what you said, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, of course, that's the autumn feast now, the Shavuot, which we uh, celebrate and speak about today. It is uh, uh, the last of the spring feasts, and then now comes the long uh, summer season. But at Tabernacles, that's when we see the fulfillment of that in a way, when all those tribes and nations in their colorful garments and traditions come to the feast and are worshiping there. So in a way, in a very real way, those two feasts are very specially uh, yes. connected to each other. Yes. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Amen. And um, let's see if there are some questions uh, um, from the attendees. We had a very good turnout today, David, some 260 people uh, joining us today from around the world. We have people that are joining us from... Uh, I do see you at uh, Cookville, Tennessee, and Jim Brown. It's good to see you. Yeah. We have, of course, again, a lot of people from China. Welcome yes. to all the Chinese listeners. Uh, Denmark is here. Taiwan is here. So this is quite amazing to see that. In a way, it's a fulfillment of what you have been sharing today. Amen. And Amen. Uh, with this, I think we can uh, discharge the people uh, into a very blessed holiday season. And thanks, David, for switching with me today because uh, I've been, I just returned home a few minutes ago uh, from the Jerusalem prayer breakfast and have to discharge again in the evening for another um, a gathering. And um, here is a request, which I think, David, you need to fulfill that request. Uh, and this is a question from uh, Lydia. And she says, well, can you please pray for us? Now, this is from Wunhuei Tai. Uh, who introduced, I remember you very well. You have been uh, suggesting for us uh, a Chinese worship leader, and we already made yesterday with Yehu Chen uh, the plan to get a Chinese worship leader at the one of the next global prayer lead, uh, gatherings. So, Wunhei Tai, thanks so much for that suggestion. You request, please pray for us. And David, why don't you pray for us that mm. this fire of the Holy Spirit might come upon us, which is also a purifying fire that you yeah. shared, and that we will 
indeed experience a fresh Pentecost in these coming days. Yes, Jürgen, I was just uh, just had a call from a journalist uh, wanting to talk about how Christians here in the land are keeping Shavuot, and she says, you know, what do you expect or what are you looking for this Shavuot? And I said, I want to feel the manifest presence of God in my life and in, in the people of God here who are gathered. And so I talked to, uh, it was a Jewish news service, I talked about the Shavuot gatherings among the local believers and even though a worship concert that's taking part. But this, Lord, is our desire that as we uh, go through Shavuot this year, that uh, just as the Holy Ghost fell on uh, on the day of Pentecost, on those believers in the upper room, just as your presence came down on Sinai and fire and rumblings, Lord, that uh, your presence would be here in our lives this Shavuot, Lord, with everyone who's tuned in here in their homes, in their cars, in their uh, churches, in their communities. Lord, let your Holy Ghost fire go forth. We want to uh, experience the kingdom of God. We want mm. to carry that glory and presence with us, Lord. It's so important that we can sit there and talk and talk and talk. There's so much knowledge and whatever, mm -hmm. but it's hard to refute the presence of God. If someone yeah. comes carrying your glory and your presence, it's hard to deny that, uh, that, that feeling and that sense that you're there and you're with us. And we want to carry that this uh, Shavuot. We want to experience ourselves and we want it to be so powerful that it, it uh, others can sense it and feel it too. Lord, we, we want to be those worthy of special people and treasure to carry the kingdom of God in our lives. And we thank you for uh, that you've chosen each and every one of us who has met, uh, bowed at the cross and been birthed into this kingdom through the shed blood of Jesus. We thank mm -hmm. God that we're part of your kingdom and ministers of this kingdom to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. And, and you know, to, to one last comment maybe, David, today in the Knesset, it was quite touching uh, we have to invite her actually to the Feast of Tabernacles, member of Knesset from the Yeshatit party, uh, a Russian immigrant. And um, she made Aliyah, she said, when she was 17 years, she for the first time heard at a meeting uh, from the Jewish agency, one of those Aliyah seminars that the ICJ is sponsoring, that there is a, a Jewish homeland where there's no anti-Semitism. So she decided to come to Israel and uh, she says one of the first persons she met was uh, an evangelical Christian, and she's a Christian, and she was quite disillusioned what she experienced in Israel. She was hoping she came to the promised land. And uh, this Christian told her, I said, you know, you need to experience the manifest presence of God in your life. And uh, she wanted to invite me to a church, she said, but I didn't go to the church. But she said that night I went to my bed and I said, Lord, if you really exist, please allow me to experience this manifest presence this woman was speaking about. And it was so powerful. She said, since that moment, since that night, I felt that God is with me. And she said she was the lady who said yesterday, he says, you know, the, there is a common route between Knesia and Knesset. And that's where she says, whenever I go to gatherings like this today, I really feel that very same manifest presence of the Lord. And it's it's experienced by many people in Israel. And that's what we wish every listener, listener that this presence, this Shekinah glory of the Holy Spirit that Jesus offers to us, that this might be experienced by all of us. Amen. 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 God bless you all and greetings wherever you are joining us. I see we get um, uh, here with some other comments from Ontario, Canada. Uh, Grace Cuthbert, it's good to see you. Nidia, of course, very faithfully joining us from Argentina. And I know many, many, many more countries. So God bless you. See you either in one of the Rosh Chodesh prayer gatherings that are taking place during this week or next week again at the Global Prayer Gathering, or next week also part two uh, for on Thursday of the uh, Shavuot seminar, where we will speak about the emergence of the church. So we look forward to seeing you there. God bless you.
It is my joy to invite you to this year's feast. Isn't that wonderful? For the last two years, we've been only able to attend an online feast, which is good, and God has blessed it, but it's not as good as the real thing. And I'm here to invite you to ascend to Jerusalem. Come and join us for the great celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles from the 9th to the 16th of October in the great city of the King. Be there personally. The doors of Israel are open. This year, my friends, is the year to come to the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrated and sponsored by the International Christian Embassy, Jerusalem. We so much look forward to seeing you at the Feast of Tabernacles 2022 here in the Land of Promise. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next Thursday at 4 p.m. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on our social media pages for more exclusive ICJ content. 